Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and adore You with Your eternal Son and the Holy Spirit. Yes, we praise and worship You in the mystery of the Holy Trinity. We thank You for loving us before we were created, indeed loving us before time began. We thank You that You chose us in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world to be Your very own people, Your treasured possession. We thank You that You now love and enjoy us with the same love and enjoyment You have towards Your Son, for we are united to Him. We dwell in Christ Jesus and He dwells in us. He is our salvation, our peace, our joy, our confidence. And so, Father, we magnify Your name. We exult in You. You are majestic, the God of light and glory whose powerful Word formed the earth and whose plan unfolds each moment as You are the sovereign ruler over all of history, orchestrating all events for Your glory and for the good of us, Your people. You are the God of mercy, keeping Your covenant to a thousand generations. All things are Yours, all wisdom, might, and honor. And so we bow before You humbly this day in faith and in sincere devotion, offering to You our praise and service. Be pleased with our sacrifices offered to You through Your Son who sacrificed Himself for us on the cross. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that You would speak to us through Your Word. Speak to us words of comfort and grace and mercy, words of forgiveness and vindication and exaltation. Father, that we might discover or rediscover the riches of the Gospel. Father, we pray this in the name of Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We all live in fear of judgment, don't we? We all live in fear of being judged. In the pre-modern world, people lived in fear of God's judgments. Today, perhaps, people tend to live in fear of human judgments or society's judgments, but we still live in fear of judgments. The truth is, we all want to be affirmed, we want to be validated, we want somebody to say to us, you're okay, you're alright, you're fine. We want somebody to look us in the eye and say, you're worthy, you're righteous, you're loved. We live each day feeling as if we are on trial. We put ourselves on trial internally in our consciences, judging ourselves. We sense others putting us on trial. We can't help care, caring about what others think, right? And we sense others putting us on trials that were in their minds, evaluating and assessing us, judging us, forming an opinion of us positively or negatively, passing judgments on us. We feel the gaze of others bearing down on us. And one of the reasons we know others are judging us this way is because we know we're doing it to other people constantly. Right? We're constantly being judged. We're constantly judging. Now, very often when we get the sense that someone's going to pass a negative judgment uh, over us, they're going to have some kind of negative opinion uh, over us, we start to look for ways to justify ourselves, to overturn that negative 
verdict. In fact, I think it's been rightly said, humans are not so much rational creatures as we are rationalizing creatures, constantly making excuses for ourselves, rationalizing our actions, justifying ourselves. And yet always wondering, is that self-justification really enough? Is it really adequate? Martin Luther was a man who lived in fear of God's judgment, perhaps not so much in fear of the judgment of others, but the judgment of God. He was obsessed with what God thought of him, with God's opinion of him. Now, certainly we could say that the uh, Middle Ages, the medieval era in which Luther came up, was in many ways a, a very Christianized period of history in Europe. But the kind of faith, the kind of Christian faith that dominated in Luther's day was defective in many ways. And this is part of what Luther discovered. But one thing that you see if you look back on that period of history is there was a real obsession with God's judgment. If you've read any medieval literature like, say, Dante, you see this obsession with the judgment of God. That same kind of obsession shows up in medieval poetry and hymnody and artwork. Uh, in fact, in Wittenberg, in the city in Germany where Martin Luther lived, over the entrance to the church, there where you would go into the church and into the church cemetery, there was a carving that Luther would have seen every single time he went into the church. It was a stone carving. And in this carving, Christ is seated on the rainbow. It's an image out of the book of Revelation. And he is very clearly judging the world. And he's so angry in this carving, the veins are popping out of his forehead. He's got this scowl on his face. Christ is judge, and he's an angry judge. That carving communicated fear of the coming judgment. And that's the kind of fear of judgment that Martin Luther lived with. This is why Martin Luther and his youth trembled with fear at the prospect of death. He trembled with fear at the thought of dying. That's why he said even though he was a good monk, his case was hopeless. He said, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monkery, through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. He says, if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself. I would have killed myself with my vigils and prayers and readings and other works. And yet my conscience would not give me rest. My conscience could not give me certainty. I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. He's constantly judging himself because he sees himself living under the threat of God's judgment. Luther was angry with God. He said he hated God because he could only think of God as judge and as an angry judge. He could not be thankful or joyful as he approached God, because he only viewed God as a judge who was against him. He felt the penetrating gaze of God upon him constantly as he hated it. But then Luther made a discovery. As he continued to study the Scriptures, he made a discovery how actually God can pass a favorable judgment over us. How God passes judgment in favor of His people who throw themselves upon His mercy, who entrust themselves to His grace, God passes a favorable judgment over us in Christ Jesus, justifying us in His Son through His death and resurrection. And when Luther made this discovery, everything changed. That horrifying 
day of wrath, the day of judgment. He so dreaded, he no longer dreaded. In fact, he looked ahead to judgment day with joy, now calling it that last most happy day. He saw the judgment day as something glorious, something he could look ahead to with joy. Indeed, I think the Heidelberg Catechism uh, captures really the, the, the essence of this spirit of confidence and joy about the final judgment. The Catechism, which comes a little bit later than Luther, but, but captures the same theology, asks the question, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? We have this natural tendency to dread judgments, and yet the Catechism asks, what comfort is it that Christ is coming as your judge? And the answer is this. In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He says in this answer, as I go through this sorrowful life, often facing trials and struggles and even opposition and persecution, I can know that what awaits me at the end is a favorable verdict. Because Christ Jesus has already suffered the judgment I deserve for me. He already stood trial in my place and was judged for my sake. So now I am free from the curse. And see, really, this is what the Reformation was all about. We're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. This is what it was all about. It was pastoral. It was all about comforting convicted and struggling believers so that those who were struggling most could, could be granted assurance and consolation so they could truly receive the comfort of the Gospel. And if you ask, well, where, did the, where, where did the Reformers find this kind of comfort? Well, they found it in passages like Luke 18. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is a parable that brings home this comfort. It is a story of God's radical and free grace in the justification of sinners, the favorable judgment God passes over sinners. Jesus starts out the story with the Pharisee. The Pharisee who is obsessed with being justified, but he's obsessed with being justified in the eyes of men. In fact, that's how the Pharisees are described in John chapter 12, John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 43, tells us the Pharisees love the honor or the praise or the approval of men more than the honor or praise or approval that comes from God. They were more concerned about the favorable judgments of men than the favorable judgments of God. And so they did their piety, they did their religion to be seen by men that men might think well of them, that men might justify them. And so what does the Pharisee do in this story? Well, he goes to the temple and he prays out loud for all to hear because he wants to impress the onlookers. He's actually doing just the thing Jesus warned about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, when he says, don't pray like the hypocrites who love to be seen by others when they pray. Jesus says, truly, they have their reward. All they care about is the opinions of men, so men will think well of them, but that's all they're going to get. See, in short, this Pharisee may have been justifying himself, in his own eyes. He may have even been justifying himself in the eyes of men, but he is not justified in the eyes of God. Indeed, Jesus says, because he has exalted himself, he will be humbled. Because he has justified himself, he will be condemned. 
this self-exaltation is the only exaltation he's going to get. And it's not going to amount to much. But then Jesus tells us about the tax collector, this notorious sinner who also goes to the temple like the Pharisee, like the Pharisee he prays, but whereas the Pharisee prays out of self-confidence and in a self-congratulatory kind of way with contempt for others, this publican despairs of himself and he pleads for mercy. He casts himself upon the mercy of God. He prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, this man wanted mercy. He had come to the right place, to the temple, the place of sacrifice. As I pointed out last week, it's really not just mercy that he's asking for. It's actually a very interesting word that he uses there when he, uh, when he, when he makes this prayer, what his petition actually is. The word that's used actually refers to the mercy seat in the temple. The mercy seat was, the, was basically the lid of the Ark of the Covenant which was in the most holy place of the temple. And it is where, as we read in Leviticus 16 this morning, it is where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. In Exodus 25, God says, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, I will speak to you. So the Ark of the Covenant had a a lid, that's the mercy seat, with two cherubim on either side, and it's like a throne where God is seated. And it's the mercy seat because this is where God will give His grace to the people. It's where the blood will be sprinkled. What does the tax collector want? What is his prayer for? The tax collector wants to be sprinkled with the blood that is poured out on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement so he can be cleansed. He wants God to speak words of mercy to him from the mercy seat. Words of comfort and forgiveness. In essence, the tax collector prays, God, mercy seat me. Give me what happens at the mercy seat. Do that Day of Atonement thing for me. What happens on the Day of Atonement, what you symbolize with the animal sacrifices at the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, do that for me in reality. Provide covering and cleansing for my sins. Turn aside your just wrath against me and accept me into your glorious presence. Cleanse me so I can come inside the veil. Accept me through your mercy, through the sacrifice. Pass judgment in my favor. And of course, we know God ultimately answers this sinner's prayer for mercy with Christ. Christ Himself is the answer to this prayer. Christ's cross. Christ is God's mercy seat. He's the one enthroned between the cherubim who gives out mercy, who gives out grace freely. His cross is the true mercy seat. Not between two cherubim, but between two thieves where He's crucified. That's the true mercy seat where the blood flows. His death fulfills the day of atonement and brings covering and cleansing. He is the sacrifice whose blood covers over our sins and who secures our acceptance before God. He is God's Word of grace to us. He is the one who has gone inside the veil to sprinkle blood like the high priest. And because His sacrifice is effective, He brings us with Himself inside the veil so we too can have fellowship with God. So we are loved with the same love that the Father has for His Son. 
And Jesus tells us at the end of the story, because he has prayed for mercy, the tax collector goes home justified. Those who ask for mercy receive mercy. He knocks on the door asking for mercy, and God opens so he can come in. He wants God to justify him, and God does. In this story, Jesus passes judgment in his favor. He's justified. He goes home justified. Now, again, justification was really the core doctrine in the 16th century Reformation. More than anything else, this is what the Reformation was about. And we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year, so it's the perfect time to revisit this doctrine of justification. Martin Luther's great discovery was justification by faith alone. The justification of the unjust by God's mercy shown in Christ alone and received by faith alone. But what exactly is justification? What does it mean to be justified? That's really the key term in the parable, that word justify. But what does it mean? The tax collector goes home justified, the Pharisee does not. What does that mean? That's the difference between the two of them at the end of the story. What does it mean to be justified? What we find in Scripture is that justification is really a deep and multifaceted concept. And you even see that, I think, right here in this passage, but certainly you see it clearly be taken into account the rest of the Scriptures. To be justified has at least three dimensions. One, there's forgiveness, which we've already started to mention, but there's also vindication and exaltation. These are other facets or aspects of justification. Let's talk about each one of these. Let's talk about forgiveness first. Let's talk about what it means to be forgiven. To be justified means you are forgiven. For a sinner to be justified, he must be forgiven. When we hear that term justification in a church context, in, 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 um, in a Christian context, forgiveness is probably the first thing we think of. That's certainly what Luther focused on more than anything else. God justifies Sinners, meaning he forgives our sin. Now, how does God do this? Well, Luther made it clear the only way God could pass a favorable judgment over us is by uniting us to his Son, which happens by faith. By faith, we are united to Christ Jesus, and now he shares with us all that is his, including his righteous status. Luther compared it to a marriage. I think this illustration actually derives from the scriptures themselves, but Luther compared it to a marriage. Uh, he told the gospel story really as the story of a romance, a romance between uh, a wealthy king with infinite glory and treasure at his disposal and a poor indebted harlot who he makes his bride. This is how Luther described it. He talks about the story of the rich and divine bridegroom Christ who marries this poor wicked harlot, redeeming her from all her evil and adorning her with all his goodness. And so for Luther, in this wedding and this marriage between Christ and the sinner, there's this wonderful exchange that takes place whereby the king takes upon all himself all the shame and debt of his bride, and the harlot who's now becoming his queen receives all his wealth and his royal status. All that belongs to her bridegroom is now hers. Luther says Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them. And sins, 
death and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, He must take upon Himself the things which are His bride's and bestow upon her the things that are His. If He gives her His body and very self, how shall He not give her all that is His? And if He takes the body of the bride, how shall He not take all that is hers? This is what happens. This is how we are justified. The king makes the harlot his queen and shares with her all that is his. He takes her shame and guilt upon himself and deals with it. And she gets his glory, his righteousness, his life, his salvation. And of course, for Luther, all of this happens by faith. This is how he describes it. Through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes ours and all that he has becomes ours. Indeed, he himself becomes ours. I think we get Christ, and so we get all that is Christ, and that includes his righteousness and every other benefit he has to give us. See, for Luther, it's really clear. God doesn't give us something other than himself. No, in His grace, He unites us to His Son by the work of His Holy Spirit so that we might share in the life and righteousness of the Son. We get Jesus Himself. And in getting Jesus, we get everything He has, including His right, right, his right standing. It's not just that God's handing out blessings, but it's that God gives us Himself in Christ. And in Christ, we are righteous. In Christ, we have everything that is His. You can't separate the gifts from the giver, the, the, the benefits from the benefactor. In getting Christ, we get everything He has. So this is what justification by faith means for Martin Luther. It means we are forgiven in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We share in Christ's righteous status. He is the just one. He is justified. And we share in His justification. Our justification is nothing other than a sharing in Christ's justification, His righteousness. But there are other dimensions of justification that go beyond forgiveness. To be justified is not just to be forgiven, it is to be vindicated. It's to be vindicated against enemies, accusers, and oppressors. It's very interesting. I read both parables for us at the beginning of Luke 18, and it's interesting how these parables go together. They really have a lot in common. They're both really about prayer. And they're both really about prayers for justification. Your translation in English may obscure that a little bit, but that's really what that first parable at the beginning of Luke 18 is about. The widow is crying out to be justified. She is persistent in her prayer. She pesters this unjust judge until finally he takes up her case and rules in her favor. And of course, I think the point of the parable is simple. If even an unjust judge will give a poor, defenseless, helpless widow justification because she perseveres, because she's persistent in prayer and asking for it, how much more will the just God who loves us give justification to those who ask Him without losing heart? If you ask for God's justification, you will receive it. In the parable, the woman, again, she's a widow, which means she is defenseless. She has no helper, no one to come to her aid. She's asking to be justified against her adversary, against her accuser 
It's very clearly a legal battle that's taking place in a law court, and that's why she's appealing to a judge to settle the matter, to settle in her favor. And the judge says in verse 5, because this widow troubles me so much, I will justify her. Some translations say avenge. You could also say vindicate. It means all those things, but it's the same root word that we get that term justification from. Same root word that's used when Jesus describes the justification of the tax collector in the next story. Because this widow troubles me, I will justify her. I will justify her lest by her continual coming she weary me. She's going to get justification. She's going to get vindication. And then Jesus explains it. Again, I'm using a slightly different translation of His words here. But in verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Shall not God give justification? Vindication. Shall not God give justification to His own elect to cry out day and night to Him? I say to you, He will justify them. See, justification here includes a, a sense of, yes, God passing a favorable verdict. That's what the word always means. But especially here, it's a favorable verdict that silences and defeats accusers that defeats those who would seek to oppress us. It's vindication. So who are our adversaries? If we're like this poor, helpless, defenseless widow, who are our adversaries who are against us? Against whom we need to be justified? Well, certainly there's Satan. His very name means the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night, and God promises to justify us against His accusations. We can be fully confident that Satan's accusations against us will not stick. None of those charges will stick because God will justify us. He will vindicate us against the accusations of Satan. But of course, it's not just Satan. Satan has his human mouthpieces who hurl accusations against the church and who persecute the church as well. Even in the next story, you can say this plays out with the tax collector and the Pharisee. The tax collector has the Pharisee as his accuser. The Pharisee is the accuser. He's the oppressor. And the tax collectors like the widow crying out for justification. Crying out to be vindicated against these accusations. You may face accusers in your life as well. People who bring accusation against you. In Romans 8, we read it this morning, Romans 8 tells us how God deals with all these adversaries, all these accusers. In Romans 8, Paul says, triumphantly, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who vindicates. It is God who silences all of the accusers. Who is He who condemns? It's Christ who died, who rose, who was at the right hand of God interceding for us. That means He's defending us. We're not like that poor widow who has no helper. We've got a defense attorney seated at the right hand of God defending us, pleading our case continually. And so Paul goes on to say, nothing can separate us from God's love for we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to live as a justified person. To live with this kind of confidence that you know none of the the, the fiery darts of accusation that are sent your way 
can fit you. They're all quenched by the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ that surrounds you and protects you against every accusation. You see this all throughout the Bible. The Psalms are full of this kind of thing as well. You can't pick up the Psalms and start reading without coming across one Psalm after another where David, as the psalmist, is pleading for God to justify him. He'll cry out, judge me, O God, justify me, O God. And usually this comes in the context of David facing enemies who are taunting him, who are persecuting him, who are accusing him, who are attacking him in some way and oppressing him in some way. And so when David cries out, judge me, O God, as he does say in Psalm 7, he's asking God to justify him. And what shape does that justification take? If God answers the prayer and judges in His favor, what will it look like? It will mean God has delivered Him from His enemies. God has silenced the accuser. And of course, a silenced accuser is a defeated accuser. If you walk into court and your accuser has got duct tape over his mouth, You've won the case because he can't speak. He can't say anything against you. It's over. And that's what God promises to do with our accusers. See, to be justified means you've been vindicated. It means the divine court has ruled in your favor. And there's no further court of appeal. Once God has spoken, once God has given His opinion on the matter, that settles it. It's over. There's no higher court. See, Jesus is the vindicated one. Jesus had His accusers. And they followed through on their accusations and even put Him to death. But in His resurrection, He was vindicated. He cried out to His Father to vindicate Him, to judge Him, to judge in His favor. And the Father did so in the resurrection. And the resurrection is His vindication. And if we are united to Christ Jesus by faith, His vindication is our vindication. He shares His vindicated status with us. But there's still more. And you need to understand, Luther certainly understood this about justification. Luther had his accusers because obviously so much of what he was saying was controversial but he was utterly confident of his vindication against all of those accusations because he looked to Christ. He knew he was united to the vindicated. But there's still more. Justification is forgiveness, yes. It's vindication, but it's also exaltation. This is right there in the story in Luke 18. This is actually how Jesus unpacks what it means to be justified in the parable. Jesus explains justification with his parallel statements in verse 14. These statements interpret one another. He says the tax collector went home justified and not the Pharisee. So you've got justification contrasted with condemnation there. Those are the two possible outcomes. And then Jesus further explains what's happening. He says everyone who exalts himself so that's the Pharisee who has prayed this self-congratulatory prayer who has exalted himself. Everyone who exalts himself will be humble so he's going to be put to shame when the day of judgment comes. But whoever humbles himself, that's exactly what the tax collector has done by trusting in God's mercy, abandoning any self-trust, self-reliance, and casting himself on God's mercy. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And that exaltation explains what it means to be justified. He goes home justified, which means he also goes home exalted. 
See, this exaltation explains what it means to be justified. To be justified is to be victorious. It's to be triumphant. It's to be exalted. Justification is a verdict. It's a Word of God spoken over your life. But the Word of God always has transformative power. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, the world changes. And so justification is an effective, transformative verdict. It is a Word of God spoken over your life with power that changes everything about who you are and everything about your situation. Justification is a legal verdict, but it's a legal verdict with a follow-through that changes everything for the one who receives it. You see this in Scripture in a lot of different ways. Judges in Scripture, like if you go back to the Old Testament, you look at judges. Judges don't merely speak their verdicts. They enact their verdicts. They execute their verdicts. Think about the book of Judges. If you know anything about the book of Judges, this is what it's about. God continually raises up judges. God's people are being oppressed. God's people are being, uh, they've been overtaken. They've been conquered. And then God raises up a judge to pass judgment in their favor. But the judge doesn't merely say, God's people are in the right. And the invaders are in the wrong. He actually goes to battle and defeats the oppressor. He defeats the enemy to exalt his people so they can reign in the land again and live in freedom. That's what it means to judge. That's what justification means in Scripture. There's all kinds of other examples of this. Think about uh, Acts 13. Paul is preaching. And he says, through Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all those things which they could not be justified through the law of Moses, through the Torah. Paul says there in his sermon in Acts 13, the law could not justify. What can the law do? All the law can do because we're sinners is accuse and condemn. The law can humble us. It cannot exalt us. The law can condemn us. It cannot justify us. It can accuse us. It cannot acquit us. The law could not deliver us from the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. In fact, the law became an instrument of these adversaries holding us in bondage, furthering our bondage. But Paul says in his sermon, through Christ we are justified from all of those things. We are exalted. We're set free. We're liberated. So those those enemies no longer rule over us. We rule over them. We are exalted. So we rule over all things with Christ. All our foes are defeated. We're set free from bondage. That's what Paul's preaching in Acts 13. That's his message of justification, his gospel. I think you see the same kind of thing unfold in the book of Romans. In Romans 4, Paul is certainly focused on justification as forgiveness. Blessed is the man against whom God does not uh, count his sins. Uh, He talks about justification as forgiveness, how we're now beyond the reach of the law's curse. At the end of the chapter, he adds vindication to the mix. He says that Christ was put to death for our sins and for our forgiveness and raised to life for our justification. And there's really vindication. Christ was vindicated in His resurrection. We're vindicated in Him. As you keep going in Romans, you come to chapter 6, verse 7, he further teases out what justification means. He says, in Christ we have been justified from sin. And there means much more than simply being forgiven sin's penalty. It's even more than vindication against our accusers. It means we have been set 
free from sin's power. And so we are now lords and kings reigning with Christ. The whole context of Romans 6, where Paul makes this statement about being justified from sin, it's all about living in freedom and power through our union with Christ. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus, and so now we have new power. Sin no longer reigns over us. We reign over sin. That's what justification means. It means we're exalted. We reign. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We've been given dominion. And again, Luther captures this so well in his little treatise on the freedom of the Christian. He says a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. To be justified is to be exalted as a king and as a Lord. He says all believers in Christ are kings and priests. We're lords over all, subject to none. But then he goes on to say, therefore, a Christian is also a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Because that's what lordship means. That's how dominion is expressed all throughout Scripture. It's through service. So we have dominion. We've been set free. We've been liberated. We're, we're kings and queens in Christ Jesus. Sin does not reign over us. Rather, we reign in union with Christ Jesus. We've been set free to live a new kind of life. We've been justified from sin. Liberated from its bondage and its power. And so the tax collector in Luke 18 went home justified that day. Which means he was forgiven. He was vindicated. He was exalted means he's victorious. He's going home forgiven. None of his sins are going to be held against him. But it's more than that. His whole life situation has been transformed. He would not, indeed he could not, go on living the same old way. He's been set free and recreated. He's been pardoned and unchained. He's been forgiven and liberated all at once through God's justifying act. God has spoken the word of justification over his life and everything has changed. And I think this shows you why the, 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 the chief objection to the reformational doctrine of justification by faith, the chief objection to this teaching really falls flat. The chief objection is that justification by faith will lead to lawlessness. People will think, oh, I'm not going to be justified by what I do. I'm justified by God's grace freely apart from works in Christ. And so therefore, I can live however I want. And the fear, the objection, is that therefore this teaching on justification by faith will undercut, it will undermine obedience and holiness. But I think you see here, that's not the case at all. That's not how salvation works. For one thing, remember this. I pointed this out last week, but it's worth noting here too. The tax collector's prayer, God be merciful to me, that prayer is really an echo of the opening line of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's great psalm of repentance. The words of Psalm 51 are the words of a humble and repentant man, a man who is broken in spirit and contrite in heart, who's ready to turn towards God in obedience, who's asking God to give him a new heart and to restore him to the joy of salvation. And so justification cannot be separated from repentance. We can only repent of our sin if we are utterly convinced God will be merciful to us and will justify us. You're not going to repent unless you're convinced that God will be merciful to you. But we can only be justified if we are humbling ourselves 
in with you. These things just go together. They're, they're connected. They cannot be severed. Only the repentant man cries out for mercy because only the repentant man will acknowledge his need for mercy. Only the repentant man will see his need for God's forgiveness, for God's mercy. But in crying out for mercy, we not only open ourselves up to receiving God's forgiveness, but we also open ourselves up to receiving God's transforming power in our lives. And so what flows into us must flow out. God's mercy flows in and then it must flow out in transformed relationships and a renewed way of life. God's love flows in and then it's got to flow right back out as we love others in the same way we've been loved. See, this declaration of justification is transformative. See, justification itself is not the bare declaration of forgiveness. Justification is God's powerful, transformative, recreative words spoken over the whole of our lives. God speaks and our status is changed. God speaks and our situation is changed. And that's why Martin Luther not only rejoiced in the forgiveness of sins that we get in justification, but he often described justification in terms of victory and triumph. He said the justified man mocks the devil and death. He triumphs over sin and the grave. He laughs at the accusations of the law. Victory is ours, for victory is Christ's, and we belong to Christ. The Father has ruled in our favor, and that verdict cannot be overturned. That's our hope. That's our confidence. In fact, I actually think you see this if you continue on in Luke's Gospel. You see the transformative power of the Gospel at work in the very next chapter when we meet a real-life tax collector, not just one in a, in a story, in a parable, but a real-life tax collector named Zacchaeus. And what happens? He meets Jesus. He trusts in Jesus for salvation. And so he's justified. He's saved. He repents of his sin, promising to make generous restitution to all those he has before. That's what salvation looks like. Zacchaeus is forgiven, he's vindicated, and he is exalted by the grace of Jesus. You see the whole package there. We all live in fear of judgment. We live in fear of what others think of us. You know, we're so concerned. You hear people today always talking about, oh, that person's so judgy. You know, I don't, they're, they're, they're judgmental. We see judgment as so negative today because we're so afraid of judgment. And of course, this is why so many people reject God. They see God as the most judgy one of all. Judgment's nothing to be afraid of. You don't have to live in fear of judgment. Do you want to go home justified today? So you don't have to live in fear of what other people think of you so that you're not controlled by their opinions of you. Do you want to go home justified today? Do you want to go home vindicated? Do you want to go home exalted? Do you want to go home knowing that you're forgiven and delivered? knowing that you are empowered and liberated? Do you want to go home assured and confident of your status, your right standing? Do you want to go home more than a conqueror? Then cry out for God's mercy and receive God's answer to your prayer in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this glorious good news, this happy news of justification in Christ Jesus, that in Him You have spoken a word 
over our lives, a transformative word, a powerful word that overturns our status from condemned to acquitted. A word that breaks sin's chains, that silences the accusations of the law. Judge us, O God. Judge in our favor. In Christ Jesus, Your Son. Have mercy on us through Christ. This is our prayer in His name. Amen. As God's justified people, let's stand together for prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are bold to come before You with our prayers and petitions on behalf of Your church and the world because we have a great High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has opened the way for us into Your heavenly sanctuary, and He ever lives to intercede for us. Grant us Your mercy and help in our time of need. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold Your peace or be still, O God. For behold, Your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate You have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against Your people. They consult together against Your treasured ones. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek Your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that You alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. We ask that Your peace would reign where there is war and violence and that You would establish justice among the nations that are racked by corruption, greed, and oppression. Strengthen Your church in the face of affliction and persecution. Defend our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for their testimony to the Gospel, especially those in places like North Korea, Cuba, India, Nigeria, Libya, and Iran. Father, we pray for the peace and purity of Your holy Catholic Church, that she would be found faithful at the coming of her Lord. Establish the proper preaching of Your Word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and rigorous discipleship and discipline. Purge Your church of all heresy and error, and grant us courage and humility to work toward the unity that Jesus died to accomplish. To that end, we pray that You would establish and provide for the work of Theophilus Institute, that You would strengthen CREC churches in the U.S. and around the world, especially Igreja de Cristo in Brazil and the churches of the Joint Eastern European Project. Bless the work of the Slavic Reformation Society and Huguenot Heritage Ministry, and also continue to bless the labors of Peru Mission, especially their new child ministry centers. Father, we pray for those who lead our own nation, that You would anoint them with the gifts of Your Spirit so that they can rule in righteousness and justice. Forgive us of when we as a, as a people have called evil good and good evil and grant us repentance from our folly and wickedness. Deliver us from the rule of ungodly men and grant that rebellious kings and magistrates would kiss the sun lest they perish in the way. We pray against those in our land who shed innocent blood, those who prey on the weak and vulnerable, and those who subvert your design for marriage and sexuality. Rescue the oppressed and the needy and deliver us from evil. Father, You are the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, and we pray that You would bless with Your tender mercies our family, friends, and those in our congregation who are sick or afflicted or undergoing trials of any kind. Bring healing to those afflicted by cancer and various other illnesses. Comfort all who grieve. Grant children to those 
who desire them. We give you thanks for the safe delivery of Ian Patrick Douglas and ask that you would bless expectant mothers in our congregation with health and strength during their pregnancies. Bless all parents with diligence and faithfulness as they raise their children in the fear of the Lord. Lord, teach us to hate our sin. Strengthen us by your Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put on Christ. Grant repentance to all who have grown comfortable in sin and worldliness, that we might be conformed to the likeness of your Son. All these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray together as our Savior taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.